Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos. I'm J. Dylan Proctor. Let's talk mob behavior and the Gospel of John. And if you hang around long enough, I'll give you some alternatives to being a part of an internet mob. So at the time of this video, there are some protests going on in Iran, and these appear to be quite serious protests. And the situation seems to be quite serious. And how do we know this? Well, if we hold up the scales of justice, we can see that the leaders there in Iran are some, some quite bad people, and they've been doing some quite evil things. And may God have mercy on their souls. And I really do hope that, that God can send some morally righteous individuals to bring stability to this society because this is really what it's going to take. It's going to take people who can move away from sort of really the, the cyclical behaviors which have gone on there, which has allowed such, such horrible evils to happen. It's going to take people having a very high moral investment to, to really overcome the, the, the problems there in that society. And the cost is high. The cost is extremely high, and I hope that there are people able to make this investment. Well, anyways, let's move along to examine what goes on here in the West. We have a culture where people gather together, and they really get involved in what I would call hollow protesting. They get together and they, they protest things really incoherently, and this is quite a problem in our society. We have this, this vicious amount of mob justice, which really trolls around the internet, looking for, for people to, to attack. And my message for you today is don't give in to the mob mentality. Don't give in to mob behavior. Don't find yourself in the easy access internet mob. And you may ask, well, what's the problem with being in the easy access internet mob? Well, the thing is, is it's, again, there's a really easy threshold to, to get up in the mob. There's no requirement of a moral commitment. And it's not just that there's no commitment. You don't have to actually invest morally into these things. You can be completely incoherent in one's morality. They can change one's moral ethics from one situation to the other with an entire entire inconsistency. And, and again, there's, there's no cost there. So it's easy access, no commitment, and no consequences. And not only that, when people get involved in the, the mob outrage mentality on the internet, it's really hard to gauge reality. Again, you may have a few people who claim to be representing masses of others, and they may not actually be. You may have a few people who are really loud, and they, they seem like there's a lot more people there than, than there actually are. Or you may have people who seem like they actually care about an issue when they really don't. Whatever the, the current issue of the internet mob, whatever issue that may be, there may be a little bit of truth there, or there may be no truth at all. The outrage mob makes it really hard to gauge reality, and that's a problem. So, as we go to the Gospel of John, we see that there was a very similar mob there in the later chapters of, of the gospel. My congregation and myself, we've been studying the gospel of John for quite some time now, and we're getting close to the, to the section where, where the crucifixion happens, and of course the, the resurrection that follows thereafter. And this is a very serious part of the gospel. It's a very serious part of Jesus' ministry. In fact, it's, it's sort of the thread which holds everything together. It allows this new era for humanity to come into to existence. And as we've been examining this, this portion, we find something really interesting in the Gospel of, of John, especially in John chapter 18 and 19, particularly in 19 is where I'd like to, for us to look today. Um, what we see happening, basically, if you're not familiar with the, the Gospel of John, the, pass, the time of Passover has arrived. The, the Jews have gone down to Jerusalem. They're there for Passover. This is why Christ comes. There's the whole in incident with the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in. It's a really big deal. But then Jesus is betrayed. He's betrayed, and he's handed over to, to the high priest and sort of the religious leaders, and they want him to be crucified. They, they interview him. They're displeased with Jesus, and all within a few hours, they take and they hand him over to, to Pilate. 
who is not a Jew, he is a Roman. And as they hand him over to Pilate, Pilate interviews him and he doesn't really find anything wrong with him. But the Jews, again, their their morality is really flexible at this point. They're not people who are thinking long-term. And when I say Jews, I don't mean Jewish people. I mean the people in this story in John chapter 18 and 19, the mob in particular, not just all the people who are there who are Jewish, but the mob who is there is a, a group of, of Jews who do not agree with Jesus and they want something done. They want him to be crucified. They want him to be killed. But again, it's really interesting because if you study the behavior of this mob, their morality is totally inconsistent. Um, even their logic is is fragmented and it's stratosphered all over the place. There's just no coherency to it, except for one thing. The only coherent thing about the mob in, well, the mob that leads Jesus up to the cross is the fact that they're they're wanting their emotions to be dealt with. They're being entirely emotional driven and they're not being long-term driven at all. They're not tuning into their more logical side of, of their own mind. They're, they're just being emotional. And when we do this, we, we really set the course for, for disaster. So let, let me just read a little bit from this to show you what I'm talking about. So in John chapter 19, this mob is there. They want Jesus to be killed. And Pilate, who again, he's a Roman, he, he says, you know, I find no, no fault with this man. I've interviewed him. There's not really a problem. But in verse 7, it's, it's very interesting. The Jews answered him, and this is reading from the ESV. John 19, 7 says, The Jews answered him, We have a law according to that law that he ought to die because he has made himself son of God. All right. So in this verse, they're claiming he needs to die. He's claimed himself to be the son of God. But of course, as we even look at this mob as a whole, as we go back and we read 18, we look at 19, they're not willing to kill him himself because they say it's we have a law against that. We can't morally kill him. Yet at the same time, they're all obviously trying to kill him. They're just wanting somebody else to do it by proxy. And then as we slip over to verse 12, again, we see some more logical incoherency. Uh, Verse 12 says, Then Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, of course, what they're referring to is there's been this title thrown around, which again, you really see more concentrated towards the end of the Gospel of John, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And they're saying anyone who makes himself a king of the Jews is, is an enemy of Caesar. Now, there's a lot of logical problems with that. One, why in the world would the Jews want Caesar to be the king over them instead of somebody who is an actual king of the Jews? But then, of course, there's the, the bigger and more obvious problem is that Herod, Herod the Great, the one who is killing children when, when Jesus is a child there around the time of the Nativity, he took on the title king of the Jews. In fact, he's really the first and only uh, Roman governor who takes on a specific title like being a king. A lot of times people that were called kings may have not actually been kings. But Herod actually takes the title king of the Jews because he wants to be king. So again, it's very interesting. Jesus also with this name king of the Jews that he has not picked for himself as as Herod did. But they are saying he makes himself a king, therefore he's an enemy of Caesar. Though obviously if the, the Roman Senate had allowed Herod to take the name King of the Jews. Obviously, there's some inconsistency there. But again, what we see happening with this mob is they're not concerned with being consistent. They're just wanting to be mob. They're wanting to behave emotionally. Well, my challenge for you is don't be the incoherent emotional mob. It's really easy to do that in our day and age. And, and as a pastor, I've got to we, we've got to instruct people better than that. And, and if you're listening to this, I, I have high hopes that you're probably not somebody who's part of the internet mob, but you may know someone who is. We have to pull our society away from the internet mob mentality. We've got to get away from mob behavior. Mob behavior is what led Jesus up to the cross. Again, 
I actually don't think all of these Jews who were here were people who would have, have, as the broad picture of life, thought it was okay to have Rome kill somebody on your behalf so that you don't have to do it. I don't think they would have been okay with Herod being called king of the Jews, and I don't think they would have ever thought that Herod was an enemy of Rome just because of that. I think these are people who are just behaving emotionally, and people will do very terrible things. They'll do evil things when they start behaving emotionally. But again, emotional behavior is not always bad. People just have to balance it. You have to balance logic and emotion. So as a society, we've got to pull people away from the mob mentality. And my challenge for you is don't, don't get involved in it. Because again, here's, here's some big problems with it. There's no moral commitment. Again, you can get online, you can post anything on social media, no moral commitment at all. You can change your, your moral perspective tomorrow. You can go with whatever the trending hashtag is, and, and that's, that's how life is. This is not what our society needs. We've got to move away from that. There's no consequences to this either. Again, there's, there's no consequences to action as long as you're part of the mob. What's interesting is there's extreme consequences for, for the mob's actions if you're on the receiving end of the mob, or receiving end of the, the mob's aim, I should say. But if you're within the mob, then you can get away with just about anything, and that's that's a really bad place for society to be. We we have the the concept of due process for a reason, and yes, that's part of the the criminal justice system. But at the same time, we we need to have be people who understand due process in our lives. We don't just need to go out and be part of mobs. So here are some alternatives I have for you. If you are someone who posts a lot online, be a producer of quality. If you do a lot of online posting, whether it be text based or picture based. Why don't you balance your time posting with a good amount of time researching? I mean, a lot of times people who are parts of mobs don't do very much time researching. They don't, they're not very well informed. Or if they are informed, it's usually from secondary sources and they're just, they don't actually understand the concepts well. So not only do you need to be researched, but you've got to be somebody of critical thinking too. So if you're someone who does do a lot of posting, make sure you're a, a one who posts quality. Be a quality producer if you're going to be really active on the internet. Make sure you don't just sound clever, but make sure you're actually doing everything you can to be producing quality material. Uh, be someone who has something clever to say. Don't just uh, sound clever. And hey, we don't always have to do things online. If you want an alternative to the mob justice, you feel angry about things going on in the world, here's a big challenge I have for you. And again, yes, this is coming from a pastor, full disclosure, but be involved in church life. If you aren't involved in church life, go go find a church to be a part of. Of course, I'm a, a Nazarene pastor. Go be a part of a Nazarene church, but be involved in church life. If you are in church, go to your pastor and say, I want to be more involved in building the kingdom of God. Or better yet, just go out and start doing it. We need to be people who are active in society. Again, a lot of times people, they say, well, I want to be an activist. I want to support a cause. I want to, I want to fight the man. I want to, to bring power from the establishment. And again, they always find these hollow causes, which are really incoherent and, and fragmented, and they're just all over the place. My challenge to you is be a part of the kingdom of God, because if we actually want to be people who, who make society a better place, well, the best way to do it is teach other people good moral architecture. If we can be engaged in the kingdom of God, be engaged in the church and say, we're going to build moral architecture in our lives, we're going to teach other people to, that's a whole lot of better course of action than any sort of backseat activism is, or, or just saying, I'm going to, to change my profile picture to have a a certain colored thing, or just do some sort of virtue signaling online. Either, again, just to, to wrap those two things up, if you are going to be online, make sure you're producing quality. And if you're looking for something outside of that, well, go talk to your pastor. Go find a pastor. Go find yourself a church. Be a producer 
in the kingdom of God and be someone who builds up moral architecture in your life and build up moral architecture in, in others' lives. Okay, well, let's change gears just a little bit. I want to talk a little bit more about the Gospel of John. And I, what I want to do is I want to go over a couple of themes which we find throughout the Gospel. Of course, these are not all the themes which are in the Gospel of John, but there are some which I think are very important. They're very important to, to understanding what it means to be a Christian with moral architecture in life, which is much more than just a foundation, but it's something you walk through and you, you negotiate with. So, the Gospel of John, if you're not familiar with the Gospels, there are four Gospels in the New Testament. The Gospel of John is really the most philosophical of the four Gospels. It's written with a, a bit of a different writing style, and as you get into it instantly, you're, you're embraced with this magnificent poetry at the beginning, which is so, so stimulating. This great statement opens up the gospel that says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. But, of course, if we go back to the Greek, we find it says something more along the lines, in the er, in arche, in halagos, kai halagos, bras theon, and you get all this, this language about, in the beginning, is the logos, and the logos is an important concept. This is one of the most important themes in the Gospel of John, and it's one that I, it really bothers me that as the church we've we've we seem to have forgotten the concept of the Logos. We've forgotten the concept of orderly transformation. And let me just bring you up to speed on this. So, Christ is defined as the Logos in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John also does a pretty good job of defining what the Logos is. Not only is it the idea of spoken word, but it also exists long before there was spoken word with people. It extends much longer than there was written word. The Logos, God's word... A lot of times we want to assume that is, is scripture, but God's word actually is this mechanism which gives order to the universe. It gives order to, to the void, to the nihilistic chaos of the world. And it's so interesting because it's not actually order itself. It's more powerful than order. It is the thing which can give order. It is a tool. It is a mechanism. God's word is a mechanism for giving order to chaos. And we see this defined there in the beginning of the Gospel of John. This is an important theme in John because, again, a lot of people, they say, well, Christ is love, God is love, but they've picked and choose virtues. As G.K. Chesterton points out, there's a great danger in roaming virtues when people pick and choose virtues, and they pick love. They pick an underdeveloped version of love that a lot of times is separated from the Logos. And I hate to be the, the Reese's Cup spoiler that says, I got Logos in your love or love in your Logos, but love and Logos go together. They're inseparable. Not only do we need to have compassion for people and we need to have a, a unconditional love and grace and mercy for people, but we also must bring people transformation. We always must be people of transformation. God is one of orderly transformation and we must be as well. So another big theme in the Gospel of John that we see after we get out of chapter 1, but also sort of at the tail of chapter 1, is that the kingdom is built off of transformed individuals. This is another big theme that in our world really needs to be articulated. We, we have this crazy amount of identity politics going on in our world. People, they want to actualize us a group identity instead of a, a quality individual. And we actually have a lot of people, even people within the church, who want to beat up on individualism. And they've done it to the point where they've said, you must embrace collectivism. All these cultures which are collective are, are the best. And they've somehow missed the, the reality of how pathological that is because identity politics is it, it, it's damned all the way to hell. It's, it's a evil, evil thing. And it's one of the great evils that is going on in the world when Christ comes around. Uh, when John the Baptist first comes out in John chapter 1, they want to ask, why, why is John doing this? Who is he? They don't ever question his message. They never care about the content of what John 
is doing. They they want to say, is he a prophet? Is he someone of old? Is he supposed to be on the side? They, they're always concerned with the identity of John. But Jesus is not one of identity politics. He's not of the collectivist mentality that says everybody is some part of an abstract group. He's of the mentality that says everybody should be transformed individuals who make up a larger body. In other words, there's this crazy thing where it's it's not a dichotomy of individualism or collectivism. Instead, there's some sort of meshing that says we are transformed individuals who function as a larger part of a body. Oh, and yes, how shocking it can be that, that people can somehow do both. But one of the things that Christ comes in is in John chapter 3, we get this fantastic concept of being born again. He tells Nicodemus, who's a Pharisee, that he needs to be born not a fleshly birth, but of a spiritual birth. And if there's ever anything which, which is antagonistic to identity politics. It's the idea of being born again. And so often we've emphasized the spiritual side of being born again, but we forgot what that moves away from. It moves away from the fleshly birth. In other words, whatever circumstances you're born as don't really so much matter anymore. In fact, your own personal sins don't necessarily matter anymore. You can be liberated from the circumstances you were born into. You can be liberated from whatever group you were born into. You can be liberated even from your own terrible choices when you are born again. It is liberty for the individual when one is born again, and you are liberated into a group that is the kingdom of God. It is a large and welcoming body, but it is a transforming body. It does not leave people in the same condition that they arrived in. And what's interesting is Nicodemus is a Pharisee in chapter 3 when, when he comes to meet John. And what's so fantastic about that is, is in John chapter 2, the Pharisees and several other religious leaders are doing some very corrupt things in the temple. They're basically extorting people who want to make offerings. They're, they're doing some horribly evil things. And immediately after Jesus just has an, a bit of an outburst and, and saying, we've got to stop this, a Pharisee comes to him in the middle of the night, but Jesus doesn't say, oh, you're a Pharisee, and put the guilt of that group on him. We have a lot of people in our culture who want to put the group guilt on individuals. They like to obfuscate the difference of a bureaucracy and the role of a person. Jesus doesn't make this mistake. He's, he's not this intellectually um, deficient. He realizes that Nicodemus, although he's a Pharisee, he's not actually a Pharisee. He's Nicodemus. His identity matters little to Jesus, and Jesus addresses him with the personal pronouns and says, look, if you want salvation, if you want to come into the kingdom of God, if you want this transformation... Well, receive my testimony and be born again. You will be freed from the group guilt of the Pharisees. You will be freed from whatever tribe you were born into. You'll be freed from your birth order. You'll be freed from, you know, whether you're a man or a woman. You'll be freed from all of these things which people like to separate people up into these days. You're freed from it. In the kingdom of God, there are no identity politics. In the kingdom of God, there are transformed individuals into a constructive kingdom. Well, as we, we carry on, the, the idea of spiritual birth is a, is a big concept in chapter 3, but also there's this idea that in verse 16 and 17 that Christ doesn't come for, for judgment. Christ, God so loved the world that he sent Christ to, to do something else. And it's not a judgment of condemnation. And when we see that there's no judgment of condemnation, we're very quick to want to say, oh, there's no judgment at all. But I think this is not at all what the gospel is trying to tell us. In fact, the next theme that we find in the gospel is that there's a new judgment. Christ is not coming to condemn, but instead to offer a judgment of new life. This is a very big deal. And basically what this is saying, if we look at John really 17 through 21, this concept of the world is pretty good at condemning itself. 
People walk in darkness. They they refuse the flashlight. They refuse the candles. And people can condemn themselves pretty well. People, they can get into evil. However, God did not come to, to perpetuate some sort of, of condemnation. The world sorts that out pretty well. But he came to actually offer new life for people who are both living and dead. It's a very interesting thing. And so there's a new judgment in the Gospel of John that is life, new life, for people who are both living and dead, which is a really interesting concept. There's a lot to that, but we'll get more to that in another video. So the next thing that we find in the Gospel, after John chapter 3, we get a few chapters where Jesus encounters some very interesting people. And what happens is Jesus encounters people who are in all sorts of places in life. There's a woman at a well, there's a blind man, there's a man next to a pool. Jesus comes to these people and he transforms them. Again, we see that logos happening. Never does Jesus come to people and say, I'm going to give you a hug, I'm going to, to touch you and your infected wounds and leave you there in that same condition. There's always some sort of orderly transformation. It's not this hollow or petty empathy that a lot of people think Christ's love is. Christ's love is transforming. It is a very powerful love. It is much more than just empathy. It's much more than a hug and saying we're going to, to eat dinner with people who, who have something gross about them. It's saying we're going to do something to make the gross things go away. It's very different um, than just empathy. Extraordinarily different. Um, I might go so far to say it's a bit of a heresy to say that it's just empathy. Um, so as we, we get to this text, we, we find that that Christ transforms people, and all these people who he's transformed, whether it be the woman at the well, whether it be the blind man who has the, the mud run in his eyes, is they all have to function a bit like a disciple, even though they're not one of the twelve, they're not one of the people who follows Jesus around. They function a bit as disciples, and this is what is so interesting, especially with the blind man. He he gets interviewed by, by a bit of an inquisition, and... All of these people, they have to, to decide whether they're going to, to tell the story of Jesus, whether they're going to relay the reality of Jesus to others, or they're going to be just people who carry on with their life and reject it all. And what's interesting about this is the language of discipleship. People aren't just challenged to be students of Jesus, they're challenged to be disciples, which means they themselves must go out and speak, they must do, they must act, they must be people who are producers. So... If you want to have any takeaway from this, it's that we are all called to be producers in the kingdom of God, not just people who, who sit idly by the side. So that's another thing that's big in the Gospel of John. You find this pretty much throughout the whole Gospel, but especially with the people that Jesus encounters in his ministry, their kingdom is built on discipleship. It's built on God saying, the world is full of, of sinners, but I love them enough to give them a new judgment of new life, and I love them enough that I'm going to trust them to do ministry, which is... If anything sends chills down your spine, the fact that God says, I'm going to love a, a terribly corrupt world enough to, to let them do ministry. God says, I'm trusting you to actually do ministry. I'm not going to micromanage you. I love you and trust you enough, and I'm going to transform you enough that you're going to represent my holiness to the world. It's a big deal. Really big deal. So another thing that we find in the, the Gospel of John is there's this language of glory. So this is our next thing we're going to talk about. And this, this word glory is interesting. A lot of times we think it means praise. We say something's glorious. Well, this, this word, if we actually go back to its objective meaning, if we go back to back in time in history quite a bit, we find that glory is this concept of divine presence. It's the presence of God. When we say something is glorious, we're saying it's so good that God's presence is there with it. That's a, that's a, a serious claim to make. But in the Gospel of John, glory is not just a... a 
rhetorical tool or it's not a linguistic thing, but it actually is real. And when we say glory, well, God's presence is actually there. So when we see people glorifying God, when we see the glorifying happening around the time that Jesus gets to Jerusalem there, the, the last time as they're, they're getting there for the final Passover before the crucifixion, this era, we see that glory is, is truly made real. It's, it's a literal glory which is also something which is a, a quite serious theme because so many times people have tried to argue, well, Christ is a, a prophet, he's not really God. Well, glory is made real. God's presence is actually there. Christ is, is God in the flesh. The next thing that is worth articulating in this book takes place a little bit before the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but it's this deal with Lazarus. So if you haven't read the Gospel of John, there's, there's a man named Lazarus who dies and is brought back to life. And there's a bit of a comedy that happens with this. When Jesus is, is confronted by some people, they say, you must come, your friend Lazarus, he is dying. And Jesus' response to them is, this, this illness does not lead to death. Well, this is quite an interesting response because it's somewhat of a comedy in the sense that, well, Lazarus' illness very obviously did lead to death. But what Jesus is saying is that death no longer leads to death. And this goes back to the idea of the new judgment. This goes back to the idea of the Logos. This goes back to really all the other themes that we've talked about so far coming together in the fact that death no longer needs to death. There is a new era which has come. And, of course, Lazarus is resurrected in this, this book, but also we really do see this, this mentality that there is a, a new era coming. And there's this push and pull between the old era where judgment is condemnation, sort of this plurality we find in modern criminal court. You're either judged guilty Perhaps some other adjudication has happened where you're you're not guilty or something has happened where there's no verdict. Uh, but in this book, we don't get that plurality. Christ is saying the new judgment is is new life. And that's that's very different from death leading to death. And that brings us to our last topic. And the last thing I want to share with you today is that the death and resurrection are necessary in order for the new era to come. So oftentimes we, we say, well, Christ, he was such a great teacher. Why did he have to go to the cross? Wouldn't his whole ministry have been true? Well, the thing is, is there is a lot going on when Jesus' ministry comes, and it's a lot more than just someone sharing a few good sermons. What is going on is this is the bringing in of a new era. This is God who has come in the flesh to come to deal with a problem of sin. And if we remember anything about humanity, if we go back to the early teachings, if we get back to the, to the, the early texts in the Old Testament, back to the, to the Torah and the, the Pentateuch, what we find happening is that humanity is created in the image of God. In other words, it's somewhat like a reflection. And God has looked at, at the statue of the, in the world that is his reflection, and he sees that it's been corrupted. And God, in response to this, says, I am going to take on the sin— because that which is created in my image is, is corrupt, I'm going to, to wear this, and I'm going to die and be resurrected so that that which is in my image can have a new reality, that it can be cleansed. And earlier, I'd made the reference to having chills on your spine that God would give you responsibility. I, I challenge you to, to have chills come down your spine that God would look at, at the corrupt decisions made by humanity and say, I'm going to take ownership of these, and I'm going to die so that those in my image can have a new reality, that they also can be resurrected, that the image of God itself can be reset, that there can be a bit of a, a reboot to the system. And that's a very powerful thing. 
And we see this theme in the Gospel of John. It's, it's necessary. Even when Christ is anointed, and even the language around anointing, if you go back to the Greek, it's not quite the normal, it's not creo, it's not the word we normally have for anointing. He's sort of embalmed when, when the anointment was put on his feet. Christ is essentially embalmed, in other words, somewhat declared dead, as well as declared clean in the same act. And it all comes together in fruition because the death and resurrection is necessary for there to be a new era in the kingdom of God. Well, that's where I'm going to end our our podcast for today. And I hope you enjoyed this content. Um, I know I've enjoyed it. If you have any questions for me, please reach out to me. Again, uh, I love to interact with people, any comments or anything. Uh, I do challenge you. um, Be someone who builds moral architecture. Don't get involved in, in the mob mentality I mentioned earlier. Be somebody who is of great quality. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help us out by just subscribing to our channel. Um, we are trying to, to build quite a, a, a larger set of programs here at Kingdom of the Lagos. I'm hoping to bring some other people in. I am greatly sad. Today. I'm saddened today by the fact that Anthony is not here. Normally, Anthony is the one who helps run the show. He, he does all the stuff. He's not here today. But again, um, if you, you enjoyed this, please subscribe. Uh, on that note, I challenge you to have a blessed day.